the country woke up essentially it was saturday so, so yeah saturday morning i think about the 29th of january to this news that the irish times had witnessed an attack on a migrant camp that their journalist kitty holland had just happened to be there that men had arrived with sticks um, uh, bats, a baseball bat, and aggressive dogs, and that a, a, a one man had been injured, and that the guardie, the Irish police, had arrived on the scene and questioned people. Now the problem was that it just didn't make sense. And uh, eventually, I had my colleague. Um, eventually, after several days of trying to call her, ring up Kitty Holland and 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 ask her some of these questions because she was a very hard woman to get. And on the record, on tape to Grip Media, she admitted that she had never witnessed any attack. Hello, my name is Anne McElhenney. And I'm Phil McElhenney. Welcome to the Anne and Phelan Scoop. It's um, February. It's February. It's February in Los Angeles and it's still really cold. It's free. freaking we're, freezing. We're very upset about that. We, we want our money back. Um, the tax, the crazy tax situation here is only alleviated by the fact that the weather is perfect every day. That hasn't happened since we got back from Ireland. Yes. So we should we get are, our tax back. We should get the tax back. So where have we been in the last week, Phelan? Um, where, oh, we've been away. Anne. We've, we've been, been away. I was in Monterey. Not Monterey. Yeah, Mon- Monterey up the, up the coast. Yeah. Yes, I was in Monterey. Because <laughs> they not Monterey Park, but anyway, because there was something else happened in Monterey Park. So Monterey. Yeah, Monterey, up, as in Carmel, as in Northern California. As in one of the most beautiful places in the world. Gorgeous. It what, rained. What were you doing there, Anne? It rained. There, I was speaking to a group of Republican women and men and. Uh, very nice event actually yes. and love met really really lovely people and had uh, decided to drive actually so uh-huh. I drove up it took this you know of course there's three different ways I could have gone um, I took the quick in the end I took the quickest route which was like five and a half hours of fairly hard driving and but stunning through the center actually of California which I've always sort of dissed a bit and I shouldn't because it's really gorgeous and and also fascinating particularly when you go past all the derricks in the middle um, all the oil rigs all the oil rigs you know, going up and down and up and down in a place called Lost Hills. I, I mm. mean, just absolutely gorgeous. It really it? is. It's wonderful to see those oil rigs because it just reminds you this is what's keeping the whole show on the road. Absolutely. And where were you, Philip? Oh, where was I? I was in uh, D.C., uh, cold and chilly D.C., um, do it on my top secret project. On your top secret project. Yes, which we can't talk about just yet, but hopefully we can talk very, about Very, very soon. But I was at a very, very, very interesting event. Okay. I was at... Freedom Works, which is a not-for-profit over there in the States, a kind of libertarian, conservative uh, not-for-profit, they had a special uh, party slash reception for the 20 congressmen. Who, and women. Uh, and women. Well, I think, I think, no, I think it's all congressmen. I think you're a congressman. Congressman, you know. Oh, you're, oh, you're called a congressman, no yes. matter what you are. Yes. Oh, okay, I got you. By I got way, you. In my book, you are a congressman. But, there's, but there, among them, there are men and women, yes. right? Yes. And uh, 20 congressmen and women who uh, who spoiled Kevin McCarthy's party. Um, and I would definitely celebrate that. I just It's just a pity they didn't completely spoil it, in my opinion. But it's very, very interesting. Now, um, I was kind of very sceptical. Why, why are we going to celebrate these people who, in the end, caved? Right. Mm-hmm. Well, caved with an enormous number of conditions, right? Yes, yes. An enormous number of conditions. Well, there was a few never Kevins there, right? Oh, and, okay. You know, right. and uh, so, however, there are a number, there are not many, but there are a number of conservatives I trust and res- whose opinions I respect yes. in Washington. And uh, they are very, very, very excited. Uh, they think these conditions they have got 
were very significant and long lasting okay. and important for the conservative movement. Oh, that's good. Um, and uh, what are we doing on the show? Ableism is the new madness, and, and boy, is it mad. And crazy California, just when you thought California couldn't get any crazier, it's now crazy piled on top of danger, on top of tragedy. Yes, terrible stories. But Californians care, Anne. Don't you forget yeah, that. They really they, care about animals. It's just people they have the problem with. Yes, people are the problem. So we, we'll bring you a story of that particular um, nicety about the Californians. And, and talking t- about crazy Crazy nut job progressives. We're going to be going yes. over and interviewing our favourite Irishman, John McGurk. There's just so many stories coming out of Ireland now. Uh, it's uh, it's the European madness where nationalism. You know, can you ever believe that nationalism in Ireland is now considered evil? Um, you know, that's that's where we've come to. And uh, we also look at how the rev- in Ireland the revolution is eating its own. So we're going to talk to John about that. That'll come on later in the show. And we have a actually, it's unfair to say we have a stunning recipe. Why is that? Because we haven't actually tasted it yet. No, that's true. But um, uh, but it I, looks stunning. Well, it's actually yes, yes. It's it's a it's in process. Unfortunately, it's complete. It's not completely finished, and it will be finished by the time at the end of this show you'll see the full recipe and you'll see us and our facial expressions eating said recipe that's true. and that's I think true. the recipe the thing, the thing about the recipe that's important for this week is that given this horrific weather we have here and yes. by the way when I say horrific weather what's happened is it's like well what is it Phil? Sometimes it occasionally gets into the 40s yeah, it gets into the 40s, which is horrific and frightening for people yes. here, by the way. The I horror. Mean, the, the horror. They've just the never humanity. Heard. The humanity. And by the way, there's a whole story here about the amount of um, na- about natural gas usage by people for heating their homes. Our bill, our bill last month was $500. was nearly $500 for one it's month. It's normally 100 And that's like the story. That's the story all over the state. Yeah. Um, and of course, the reason why the price is so high is because of the Biden administration's anti-fossil fuel um, legislation and initiatives, which have made, you know, which have which have brought down production. While we've had this cold spell all over the country, by the way, and obviously it's not that bad here, yeah. although it's bad enough. But in other places, it's been horrific, um, really horrific, and people have died. So, so that obviously energy uh, the usage, demand. the demand has gone crazy, the supply has gone down, so the price has gone up. I mean, yes. this is this so is very very simple progressivism, economics. By the way. Progressivism is putting. Tens of billions of dollars in oil companies' pockets. Yep, and so, and, and re- extracting tens of billions of dollars from poor people's pockets. Yes, great. Yes. That's progressive. That's progressive. Never think. So tell never. us about the recipe, Anne. Oh, and uh, the recipe. Well, the thing about the recipe. So I think that my point with the recipe was, I mean, is it's very perfect for this time of year, and it's warm and comforting, and um, and a, and a delight and fun to make as well. Because I just think I'm a big believer in braising, and I'm a big believer in the Dutch oven. Do buy yourself a Dutch oven, and you can leave it to somebody after you're gone. That's how nice Dutch ovens are. Anyway, I, they're let's, a great investment. Let's get on not, with the show. Yeah, very depressing there to be thinking about leaving stuff to people. We're not going anywhere. So let's get on with the show. So Phil, tell us a, b- a bit more about this McCarthy situation. Yeah, so so yeah, as I say, I was in DC at a party and look who I met, Lauren Boebert. There's a picture of me and Lauren Boebert who is a really, really, really nice person. For, out of, Col- Col- out of um, Colorado. Colorado, right? Yeah, 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 you might hear. And she's new. She's a freshman, no, right? No, oh, she's, no, she's been there a couple of... Uh, oh, okay. A couple of um, goes. Um, I was actually sceptical. Once I got there, there were some, and I'll name names actually, Myron Bell from the CEI, Richard Vigory, you know. Oh, you didn't tell me you met Richard Vigory. Yeah, yeah, he's oh there. Oh my God. One of my, <laughs> my favourite people 
in Washington DC I think Washington DC is full of vipers and dreadful people and then in the middle of all of it you'll meet somebody as wonderful as Richard Vigory Richard Vigory who possibly is coming up on 90 now and who is the it's youngest fabulous. man you know in, in DC Has I told him energy. I said Richard please keep sending us your documents and your emails because yes. we steal all your stuff yes right yes. he had a good laugh at that he's you know, excellent he's just going to bring in the size of of, of, of Mars you he's know? just smarter than everyone else smarter than everyone else so he, he sends out these uh, you should go on I think it's Conservative HQ that's mm-hmm. where he blogs mm-hmm. and get on his mailing list because uh, he he's the man who uh, actually we've had him on the show recently. we have had him on the show and we should have yeah. him on again because he's really he, what a brilliant man and what so, a fun person a beautiful person a beautiful soul actually maybe I'll have we'll have Myron on next week as well to talk about this in more detail but the, the actual many takeouts I got from this party was you know it, it appeared you know the, the, the rebellion appeared mm-hmm. ad hoc it appeared to be kind of on the fly. It was not. This was planned months and months. They were meeting as early as June every week, every week. And they had action plans and they had things to do. And um, these and are the people. So you're saying these are the people who challenged Kevin McCarthy. To yeah, and refused to vote for him. Because everyone thought it was a slam dunk. Kevin yes. McCarthy was going to be the Speaker of the right. House. And then we had this protracted, you know, election, you know, vote and, you know, vote and defeat and vote and defeat that went on yeah. for quite a while. But as Phelan says, this is what he learned. And I actually thought that was, it's, um, it's quite an interesting scoop actually to yes. have because people don't know this. So this thing was all planned. It's so all tell, planned. tell so me yeah, more. So they're having meetings as far back as June. And, and actually, Myron was telling me, you know, they were having like, they were all thinking, what kind of person is McCarthy? What kind of, you know, how can we, and, um, you know, the the big conversation was, can we give, can we help Kevin McCarthy get a backbone? Can we inject a backbone into him? Can we give him a backbone? And, and as Myron says, look, it's not about a backbone. Kevin, this is Kevin McCarthy. He's, he's an expert. He's a, a genius at this. Uh, finding what way the wind is blowing. So you need to blow wind at him, right? So the plan was to blow wind at him. And they went in advance. They've been going for months now to McCarthy saying, look, uh, here's our demands. Here's what we want. And McCarthy fire, threw them out of the office. With, oh, yeah. Because he was going to get a landslide. Oh, they, oh he didn't yeah. want to have anything to do with them. Oh, yeah. So everyone was very, very uh, praise, praising uh, the five. So the initial vote was, was five rebels. Mm-hmm. Remember that? And uh, when McCarthy didn't have the uh, didn't have the numbers, there was five that made sure he didn't get in the first election. Then they were joined by, I think it was nine or 11. It was 11 in the next vote. Wow. And that was amazing, right? And But what was really, really shocking to them was they picked up three freshmen. And like, and so suddenly it became how many then? 1920. And they, they, for that was them, quite a bit, that's a very big blo- voting block, right? Yes, it was very big blo- voting block, but also the idea that three freshmen who were just landed, who, who, who didn't know the way of the world, who were told right. you'll never eat lunch in this town again. Yeah. If you vote for <laughs> the courage it took for them to stand up against that establishment, and they were ex- explaining Kevin McCarthy. Then his team, they weren't phoning these guys saying, "What can we do? What can we want?" They were phoning the donors oh. of these congressmen in their constituencies. Uh, and then getting those donors to phone them. One of the guys was getting three phone calls a minute, constantly. From his donors. From his donors. Saying, get in line. Get in line. And uh, he said, and he said, basically, you know when you saw, you saw when the revolt would end and you saw them on their phones, that was them responding to donors who were put on, like Rottweilers. McCarthy put them on. So, uh, Politics. What a, politics. Dirty, what a dirty business. But 
they what they one of the, you know there was there was highs and lows. One of the lows was they thought once the twenty voted a few times, they'd pick off a few more uh, congressmen. And they said, "One that didn't happen, they knew that 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 was a they that meant, was a weakness. They meant business. No, they, they thought no. Well, they thought they'd pick off the, some of the twenty, but no, the twenty thought they would pick off more congressmen, and it'd be twenty five and thirty. Oh, okay, right. So, but the fact that no one caved that that they had the same amount of votes and the second vote as uh, in fact they might even gain one but they didn't there was no momentum so they got a lot of concessions according to conservatives and it's a lot of it seems to be arcane and all that but people are saying it's not arcane it's very important and it's going to be um it's, it's going to make it's going to be a different a congress. better a better congress yes. well let's we we hope so let's we should have myron on next week though to talk about this okay so, uh, in other crazy news out there in the world, this this is an extraordinary story about ableism, which is kind of a new word on me, by the way. I don't know. The, the, it's it's very new, right? Ableism. Mm-hmm. So, so there's this guy on YouTube called Mr. Beast. You know, he's the biggest. You know, from a financial point of view, I think he's the biggest influencer on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Um, and so basically, uh, he's 24 years old. His real name is Jimmy Donaldson. He's the highest earning creator on the YouTube platform with a record-breaking 131 million subscribers. So this young fellow um, came up with this idea that he would, that he would because he's making loads of money and he's huge on YouTube, he found out that there was a way of treating blindness um, that was a certain kind of blindness that could be cured with a very short 10-minute surgery mm-hmm. that wasn't that crazy expensive or whatever. And so he decided that he would treat, that he would help um, pay for for this treatment for a thousand people. Wow. Okay. You know, what could possibly go wrong, right? So, um, so let me tell you, this 24-year-old says, out of my money, yeah. my own money, I'm going to pay for a thousand people to get their eyesight back. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, what could possibly go wrong and what could possibly be wrong with such an idea, yeah? Yeah, right. um, but, you know, this video, he created a video about it and whatever, but the video has divided fans, you know. Mm-hmm. In January 28th, the video was called A Thousand Plain People See for the First Time. Surgeon Jack Levinson explained to Mr. Beast, Mr. half Mr. of all Mr. the... Beast. Yeah, half of all the blindness in the world can be treated with a 10-minute surgery. Mr. Beast announced that he would be helping a thousand people undergo the operation. The video shows how many of those patients reacted. Let's have a look at some of the, some of the video that he created around this surgery. In this video, we're curing a thousand people's blindness. It's gonna be crazy. Most of us see the world like this. But here's the thing, 200 million people see the world like this. But I just made it one less. Oh. Wow. She's just one of a thousand blind people we help from around the world. They can't see but we have all the technology to fix it. Yep, half of all the blindness in the world is people who need a 10-minute surgery. Crazy. Yeah. Oh, oh my God. God. I'll okay. see everybody. Oh, I can see clear. <laughs> I can jump for joy. <laughs> I can see your face, I can see your face, I can see your face. If you're wondering how the surgery allows people to see again, it's because the lens in their eye got so cloudy that they can't see through it. So the surgeon uses a tiny vacuum to suck up the clouded lens. Whoa, it's sucking. And replace it with an artificial one. The surgery is that simple. They can see again. So kind of fabulous, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, really fabulous. Amazing, amazing. And guess what happens then? um, um, 
people send in money to give another thousand people to... Wouldn't to, you think that? No, he gets he gets, a, he gets a medal. He gets invited to the That's State right. of the Union. That's right, yeah, yeah. No. As Biden's guest. No, he, no. People start accusing him of charity porn. Yeah, there's something so somebody wrote on Twitter, there's something so demonic about this, I can't even articulate what it is. Yeah, you can't articulate what it is because you're an idiot. Sorry. I mean, this is a great thing. And so basically the big criticism of this guy is that he's making money. That he made the video and the video of the people gaining their sight brought in money to him. Yes. And it's like, I must be, I'm missing something here. Am I missing something here, Phelan? Well, you know, Honda's helpful act of kind. We have that. Oh, yeah, I, I yeah, don't know, yeah, I don't yeah, know. that's right. I don't that's know if right. you have that in the rest of the United States. We have it here in, in LA, and it seems to be quite LA bits, but a Honda representative will knock on your door and say, I hear... Would buy you groceries for a year? Yes, uh, you know, and it's, it's like, this is, you know, it's a... They, these companies, companies do this, yeah. and maybe they get a benefit That's right. from it. But That's right. you know, this is what they do. You know, yeah. it's not Mr. Beast. You know, somebody said Mr. Beast has been making exploitative content for a while now. He uses vulnerable and desperate people for content. Doesn't make him a good person for making that happen. I don't think we've heard from any of the thousand people who've regained their sight complaining. By the way, wanting to be blind, or again. wanting to be blind again, or that didn't agree to being filmed. Um, I just, I just think it's a complete win-win. I love yes. the fact that he's made money because he's going to do something else. And by the way, this young man has also said that his big plan in life is that he's going to give away all the money he's made, you know, before he dies, basically. And he's obviously extremely wealthy. Anyway, I just thought it was kind of, I just thought it was one of those, another one of those crazy, crazy stories. But talking of crazy and crazy, crazy California, the most, one of the most crazy stories I think we've heard in quite some time happened just last week here. We are learning more about the victim of a deadly confrontation on the Pacific Coast Highway in Dana Point. The Orange County Sheriff's Department says Dr. Michael John Mamone died after he was hit by a car while cycling, then stabbed by the driver. The 58-year-old was an emergency room physician worked for Providence Mission Hospital. So a Southern California doctor was killed Wednesday during a violent encounter. This is from the this Fox, is from News. Fox News, in which he was hit from behind by a vehicle while cycling and then attacked by the driver. And the detail that came that came up that was yes. kind of really uh, uh, really added to this the awfulness of this story, which is hardly needing anything else to be added to it. The guy who got out of the car and stabbed the guy to death after striking him um, started shouting stuff. Like, what was he saying, About Phil? white privilege. About white right. privilege. So this, this is, is a, 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 an African-American person uh, stabbing a white person to death uh, in a racially motivated attack uh, whilst ranting about white privilege. So knocks him off his bicycle and jumps out and apparently he had a BB gun or something like that and yeah, then stabs him to death and is ranting and raving about white privilege. This is just a continuation. When you make everything about yes, race, yes. you're going to appeal to nut jobs on both sides. Correct. Uh, who are going, to, who are, this is going to, uh, to use a progressive word, trigger them. This is going to set yeah, them off. Totally. And this is what happens when you uh, not necessarily people listening to this show, Correct. but you, uh, the great and the good out collective there. Collective out there. Yes. Collective people out there. Make everything about identity and race. Yeah. You're going to uh, you're going to raise tensions. Ra- you know, when you talk about microaggressions, you know, microaggressions. In other words, we have no problems in this world with race, so we have to go out and search for them with a, with a magnifying glass yeah. and a telescope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Exactly. Microaggressions. Exactly. Anyway, this is this is... This is the sharp end of microaggressions, and I hope you're very happy. Yes. Uh, because you've just destroyed 
a family. You've destroyed a, a man who was doing nothing but good for his community and for people in a hospital. I'm sure he didn't rant and rave about the race of people he treated in the hospital. Yeah, exactly. Unbel- it's an unbelievable story. But one of the things that's amazing about, about Los Angeles, another amazing thing about Los Angeles, hmm. they may not care that much about people, but my God, they really care about animals. In the jungle, the mighty jungle, the lion sleeps so this is a very, I think this is a very Californian, very LA story. So, this, and I'm taking this from the Wall Street Journal. And honestly, I'm going to read a lot of this because I just think it, it's just the details are just extraordinary. So, this past weekend there was a memorial service. There was a celebration of life service here in Los Angeles for a mountain lion. P22's memorial sold out 5,200 seats at the Greek Theater in less than three hours. A mountain lion that had been euthanized in the last few weeks um, because of its uh, because it was dying anyway. Basically, it had been hurt by a car or whatever. But you know, basically, the front page of the Wall Street Journal. This is a huge story here. Los Angeles gives star treatment to P twenty two. This is what they called this animal, P twenty two, the Brad Pitt of mountain lions. Can you believe that? This valley is filled. You what know, was he, was P twenty two married to a nut job? Oh, that's... Ooh, Phelan, careful there now. Los Angeles, this valley... Here's what they say in the Wall Street Journal. This valley is filled with celebrities, both say, oh, gorgeous I, and aloof. I just want to say, that when I, was refer- I was not referring to Jennifer Aniston, who this show is a great fan of. I was referring to certain other nut jobs. The December might. death of one famous resident who was a little bit of both has provoked an unusually unrelenting an unusually unrelenting outpouring of admiration. The icon is the city's famous mountain lion, P-22. There's so many details in this story, by the way. The reason I'm, I'm labouring this is it just tells you an awful lot about Los Angeles, that you, that, you know, just the madness of Los Angeles. Thank you, P-22. We love you. Um, a stealthy native son turned anti-hero who many Angelinos felt they knew and certainly loved, Mm -hmm. though almost no one got close to. Years ago, the tawny, muscled puma somehow traversed... By the way, I have an issue with the word traversed. I just need to bring this to a conscious level right now. Traversed is another word for crossed. Am I right there, Phil? Yes, yes. But I don't know why people use it. But if any of you know why we need to use the word traversed... I think it makes them think they're intelligent. Maybe. Although... Traversed. Maybe, maybe it makes it. I think actually in this case it might be legitimate because crossed sounds easy enough, but yes. tra- traversed, traversed when it's when there's up obstacles. So this animal, in fact, which is actually kind of extraordinary, and look at me now, I'm going to start saying good things about this animal. This animal managed to cross the ten-lane highway, right? Of the four hundred five or the, the one hundred one? It must be the four hundred five. I think it's the four hundred five. Oh no, the one hundred one. It's the one hundred one. Of anyway. the one hundred one. Okay, yeah. hellish California freeway to take up residence in Griffith Park, an urban oasis in Hollywood Hills, above the trendy Las Feliz neighborhood. So you know, this cat was basically featured in every kind of like there was there were fashion shoots with this yes. cat being in these all these amazing places and stuff. There's been T-shirts, murals to this cat. A Jeopardy question, a local beer and a cocktail are named after him. You know, the L.A. City Council declared an official P-22 day and a special issue P-22 library card is soon to be out. Petitions now call for a P-22 statue um, and a star on the Hollywood uh, Boulevard. And also Adam Schiff, lovely Adam Schiff, you know, the man with the neck. Um, who is or the lack of who is from the LA area has proposed uh, an, a stamp a commemorative stamp should be organised for him um, and called him a celebrity neighbour you know on Saturday you know basically and so on this past Saturday well the, so the P22 
actually, I think it's a very dramatic ending. He started really approaching people, and then he, he didn't he eat someone's chihuahua. There's a chihuahua thing. I was going to get to the chihuahua. Okay, okay. Yeah. Go so on. basically, but on Saturday, anyway, he was honoured um, with a sold out. P22 Celebration of Life at the Greek Theatre, an outdoor venue that holds about 5,900 people. Right, wow. so 5,900 people came to celebrate the life of this uh, animal. Tickets went so fast, organizer comp- organizers compared it to the selling of tickets for Taylor Swift. Um, for those who couldn't get in, 11 Los Angeles public libraries planned live stream events and watch parties. It was the kind of tribute typically typically reserved for the uber famous and held the same weekend that the Grammys were on. Who would have ever believed that a cougar could sell out the Greek in two hours and all and all. The Rain Wilson from The Office sang a song. What was the you song? Know, do we know? I don't know what the song is. Another speaker, Michael tell McMahon. Us, tell us in the notes or in the comments what song you think it might have been. Another speaker, Michael R- Mahan, rude answers only. said he saw P-22 roving through his backyard in the Cahunga Pass many times over the years and he like so many Angelinos came to identify him we were just two ageing bachelors roaming the Hollywood Hills Mr McMahon said to the laughter and cheers but I love this bit film because you're actually bringing up the thing about the um, you're bringing up the issue about the chihuahuas but anyway like, you know so there's lo- you know, there's loads of layers to the story but yes. what happened then is um, P22 was discovered in the park at about the age of two and named whatever he was named but best guess whatever I'm moving on here um, uh so he, so I think the extraordinary thing is he crossed ten, ten a ten lane highway. So yes. the one hundred one. And so he was the only one. He was the only uh, mountain lion in his area. You see, he was he was a lonely guy. Cause I think people like that. But like you and the possum, you know, the possum is on his own in our back garden, wandering around. So P twenty two was the only one to cross the, the ten, and therefore no other. He had no other. He had no girlfriends or anything like that. In so the he area. basically what he did was. The best guess, this is what they're guessing about what he did and how he got to be on the sort of uh, in the city side of things. Mm. The best guess is that the young cat struck out for Hollywood like so many other dreamers, right? Yes. By strolling from the mountains near Mulholland Drive before jumping on the 405 and then headed east, likely through Laurel Canyon and over to the 101. Right, by the way, these are massive highways. Unscathed from his epic wow. commute, he set up... And the yeah, yeah, he set up camp in the Hollywood Hills and claimed Griffith Park as his own, but which is 4,200 4, acres, which is fine, as his personal playground with a seemingly unending buffet of deer and critters. His tracking collar showed... He spent most of his days napping. I love this with cats, by the way. His nights were spent on the prowl. The occasional residential camera spotted him meandering through dimly lit neighbourhoods like a typical LA driver looking for a shortcut. He was once discovered hiding in the crawl space of a family home in Las Mm. Feliz and refused to budge even when the authorities shot tennis balls in his direction. He's, and then, you know, I love these quotes, you know, he's real casual. Real comfortable, an animal controller officer told local media. In 2016, he was the prime suspect, this is where it gets interesting, in the slaying of a Los Angeles zoo koala named Killarney. Oh, I didn't know this. Named Killarney. Killarney. Oh. You've heard about this, right? No, I didn't know this. Okay, oh no, 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 this is very interesting, right? Though Though there were no witnesses or video evidence, the koala's remains were found on a trail leading away from his enclosure and towards... P-22's hunting grounds. He, he broke into the enclosure at the zoo. Zoo officials surmised, surmised that Killarney was on an evening walkabout when the cat leapt the fence and made away with his prey. When a speaker at the Greek theatre, and will you hear this? When a speaker at the Greek theatre on Saturday mentioned P-22's infamous zoo foray and the death of Killarney, the whole crowd 
Yes. In the Greek, many over five thousand people in unison started shouting in defence, saying allegedly, allegedly about the death well, of the yeah, koala. I mean, I mean, where's the DNA evidence? Yes. You know? Yes. Anyway, the, you know, somebody else then said on stage to him, I'm sure, it was just a weird looking. It must have been just like a weird looking raccoon. Right. Yes. I just remember getting the call and I was like, and this is this is an animal conservation guy. Um, I just remember getting the call and I was like, he did what? I never in the course of my wildlife career thought I'd have to be issuing a statement about a mountain lion eating a koala in Los Angeles. Yes. At the time, she worried Killarney's death would lead a push for P-22's removal from the park. But the collective decision was made to leave P-22 right where he was. I just remember thinking, wow, people are really on the side of native wildlife here. Please remember that quote because I am going to mention that again. Well, hold on. That, that's basically saying koalas are legitimate targets. They're just apparently yeah, so. so you know, if, you're not, if you weren't if you weren't born here, so it's an anti-immigrant stance. If you weren't born here, you deserve to be eaten. There you go. Interesting. There you go. Eventually, P twenty two was captured as researchers noticed his behaviour had become erratic, with attacks on two chihuahuas in the last weeks of his you life. Like the chihuahua. And can I tell you that one of the owners of the chihuahua spoke apparently at this event, I think, or was quoted anyway in the yeah. media, basically saying you know no, nothing to worry about here you know we just know that he's just you know he's a P-22 Well chi- chihuahuas are from Mexico too you see so it's more anti-immigrant sentiment. During his medical treatment he became clear that P-22 had likely been hit by at least one car and was suffering from other illnesses he probably attacked the dogs Miss Pratt Miss Pratt said because she was no longer he was no longer capable of hunting bigger prey in his twilight years so he was euthanised on December the 17th at the age of 12 Not a very not a very happy Christmas for him really. Considered old for his breed and listen to this, you know, from Miss Pratt. This is again the conservationist. It wasn't because he ate a chihuahua. The owners of that chihuahua, they reached out to me. They recognised he wasn't being bad. He was just being a mountain lion. They still love P22. <laughs> he ate their well, chihuahua. Their chihuahua. Anyone, I would not be as generous now if he had, if he had touched our Mr. Scaredy Cat or Mr. Top Cat. Yes. Jerry Hans, president of the Friends of Griffith Park, a non-profit organisation, said P22 supporters are asking to make donations for any future memorials. He envisaged a bronze statue or even a plaque. Can I just say, where's the, where's the statue for the chihuahuas? Yeah, that's what I want to A change.org petition calling for installing a P22 statue in the park had 711 supporters signed as of Thursday. And not, oh, none of them were a chihuahua. Several murals of the cat are already in place or around the city. The Library Foundation of Los Angeles has announced an upcoming event with an open mic called How P22 United Our City. Love letters to LA's favourite cat. And more, moreover, a wildlife yeah. corridor inspired in part by uh-huh. the harrowing journey that this cat experienced when he crossed that 10-lane uh, highway has been, um, has been given the green light. Yeah. They're going to spend... Eighty-seven million dollars to accommodate the next cat that yep. decides he wants to cross ten ten lanes of the highway. Eighty-seven million dollars. Um, Miss Pratt, at the very end of this story, again, this is from the Wall Street Journal, and the whole thing is just fabulous. Miss Pratt and others said his legacy will all live on in conservation efforts, including the Wildlife Crossing Bridge. I loved what he represents. I love what he achieved. Miss Pratt said, "I'm so grateful I was on the planet at the same time as him." And all I have to say to that, and possibly the main reason why I'm bringing you this story in such excruciating detail, is to show the excruciating lengths people will go to love an animal. Wouldn't it be just great? If they could extend that to children. 
Wouldn't it be great if they could extend that to babies in the womb, by the way, in a, in a town where I think it's 180,000 babies were aborted last year here in Los Angeles. Many of them up to nine months. Many of them up to nine months. Basically, you know, the, the rule here is you can have an abortion right up to nine months in Los Angeles. For whatever reason. For whatever. Well, you know, they say for the health of the mother or whatever, to the health of the mother or mental health or physical health, which basically means for any reason at all. Um, and just to have, you know, just putting those two stories together, I just think, you know... And I, by the way, and by the way, can I just say, let's look, put up a photograph here of Security Cat and Top Cat. We are very irrational about our affection for these cats, by the way. So we have no issue. We actually, I have no issue with them. Put up, put up a statue, do whatever you like. But I just wish you could extend it to human beings, you know. Like there's all this talk about extinction and the worry about the, you know, the extinction of the planet. We're facing, and actually Elon Musk has written about this on Twitter, and I'm really impressed with him about like the biggest... The biggest catastrophe facing humanity is um, the population, yeah. is, the, is the population decline. Well, and and yeah. COVID did nothing good for it. And by the way, when I say COVID, I don't mean people dying from COVID. I mean the fact that COVID has further depressed people and has not done good things yeah. for uh, one the thing. I, one thing I would say is that the most endangered animal in Los Angeles at the moment is a baby and a woman. There's yep. no doubt about it. No doubt about know. it. 180,000. And they are, you know, humans are animals. There's, that's the most endangered species of all. Um, and you know what's interesting as well, actually, when you say that, what's very interesting is, um, you know, so they go to these incredible lengths to, um, you know, to tag these animals in the wild and to work out the population of them. How many of them are there and work out their population of the population is go, going up and down and yeah. all that. So in abortion in America, there is you know, quite a number of states do report the number of abortions, yeah. but they're not required to. There's no requirement. So, for example, in Pennsylvania, there was a requirement apparently to um, to report how many abortions were happening. Kermit Gosnell operated for, dec- for decades. He never bothered, and no one ever checked up on him. They never bothered. So, so that'll tell you about the numbers. So we don't. The numbers are just guesstimates. So, talking of crazy, crazy progressive madness, uh, Ireland. We could do the whole show about Ireland yes. and Europe, but let's let's go over now just to talk about about the latest progressive madness in Ireland and in Europe. Let's go over now to. John McGurk of Grip.ie. I recorded the interview just Earlier. before we came on air. So let's go over that interview now. And and y- you won't believe what's going on in Ireland in all sectors and across and all parts. And just to say, like, we're including this because actually it's just it just it tells you a lot about Europe in general, by the way, um, Ireland in particular, but yes. but Europe in general, this okay. kind of nonsense. Well, I have a question for people, actually, before we go to the interview. If we were to take people oh, yeah. on a tour of Ireland, the Annan Phelan tour of Ireland, like a, a National Review cruise, um, You'll see the sights of Ireland, but you'll also meet conservatives in Ireland to hear how Ireland is. And uh, would, would people would be in, would people be interested in coming to Ireland with us? Write in the in the comments below in the YouTube or on the Apple Podcast, and because we're trying to work out interest and uh, yeah, see yeah, because we, we might just do that. Might just do that. So yes. let us know. So let's go over that interview now. Well, hello. Uh, we're joined uh, now by John McGurk, who's the editor in chief of. Gripped.ie, the the best media outlet in Ireland, which no offense, John, isn't probably saying a lot actually. Um, uh, I was going to say that it's 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 moderate praise rather than high praise. Yes, him, but yes. I appreciate it. Yes. Yeah. So, well, welcome to the show. Um, I mean, we could talk to you every week about the madness in Ireland, but this, you know, I thing that caught my eye and uh, and obviously a story that you were very heavily involved in was a dramatic. Well, actually, let's give some context. So Ireland is in a housing crisis, like a lot of progressive 
cities and countries in the world, Ireland has managed to to zone and fair rent itself into a crisis of 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 there's absolutely nowhere to rent. So it's basically every landlord in Ireland is trying to get out of the landlord business because the government has made it impossible to throw people out of houses. So so there's an actual in it's it's a it's a crisis. It's an international news story. It's impossible to get accommodation in Dublin, and it's spread to villages and towns across Ireland. So that's the context. And then we have and just to give just to give Phelan, just because I think it's important to give your listeners some context on just how how extreme the housing policies are now in Ireland. There was an old saying, I think it was Reagan's, that you know for the left, you if something moves, tax it; if it keeps moving, regulate it; and when it stops moving, subsidize it. And that's what we have now in Ireland. We have eviction bans, for example, if you're a landlord and if you're a tenant, you can't evict them. We have rent controls. We have notice periods for tenants that are so long that they effectively get permanent residency of the property um, and nobody's investing in property and at the same time we have a housing market that's completely dead and our, our new house building is going nowhere so it's a lesson in I know it's not what we're talking about mainly today but if you want a lesson in how not to manage a property market Ireland is a good place to go and look yeah yeah and 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 it's it's very relevant to the conversation we're going to have about immigration and and uh, and refugees so Add to that, Ireland is known internationally as a soft touch for for alleged refugees. Uh, they get really well looked after. They get accommodation. Add to that, the Ukraine war, where, where Ireland, because, well, who knows why, but Ireland seems to always want to be the best boy in class. And they said, we will take whoever turns up at our door. So Ireland... Uh, I think what's the figure now? Eighty-seven thousand is it? Ukrainian refugees mm. uh, have turned up. I don't know the exact figure. It's, it's between seventy and ninety thousand. No one has the figure, the exact most up-to-date figure. But it should be said. I mean, at the beginning of the war, when when the when the invasion happened, the Irish government said it would be happy to accommodate two hundred thousand people from Ukraine, and that's how many we should expect. Um, they, they've now reached a, a level of seventy, eighty thousand, and uh, as we will learn as this conversation goes forward, I suspect. The, the the doors are creaking on the hinges. I mean, we can't accommodate more, but nevertheless, the government does say we may expect another hundred thousand at some stage this coming year. So, uh, it's a, it's a it's an odd policy to put it mildly in the context of a housing crisis. Yeah, for the context, the population of Ireland of, of the Republic of Ireland is what five million. So it's a it's a huge proportion of people in a country that was already suffering from a housing crisis. Um, so you you throw in that you throw in another few hundred thousand of refugees, alleged refugees, people coming here to claim refugee status, most of whom proved to be um, fraudulent in the end. But that doesn't. But it takes so many years for the process to go through that they get de facto status anyway. And and I think the thing about the Ukrainian crisis. Uh, sorry to go into detail here for the listeners, but it's important. This is how how crazy government is. They are now going into small Irish towns and villages and paying hoteliers an enormous sum of money. So they're stopping people from renting their houses, but then they're going to small hotel owners and big hotel owners in Irish towns and villages and paying them ginormous amounts of money to take uh, refugees and immigrants. Uh, So you have towns, tourist towns in the west of Ireland, some of them close to where I have a house as well, that are now, like Bundorn has... A population, Bundoran County Donegal has a population 
a thousand or two in the winter. Uh, it now has, I think, nine hundred Ukrainians in hotels there, which is a com- you know is completely uh, messed with the population of the village. But also, it has it's going to severely affect the economy of the village because in the tourist season there's going to be no hotels for tourists, and every business that has grown up to feed the tourist industry is not... I mean, these these Ukrainians or these refugees, they get money from the government, but the government's not that generous. It's not enough to sustain the cafes, the surf clubs, the, the riding, the pony uh, places, all, all the businesses that have grown up for these tourist industries in the west of Ireland. So, so there's a lot of unhappiness, and therefore, for the first time really in Ireland, there have been protests about these policies, you would think that they were they, they were burning people out uh, the way so the media has has called them far right fascists but so has every political party almost every political party in Ireland is very clear that these protests are unreasonable unacceptable and uh, you know they really want to put them in jail am, am i am i am i describing it accurately there john you're probably exaggerating a small bit but not by much I mean, the, the, the situation is um, basically as, as, as follows. We, we have had um, the immigration uh, situation you describe developing over the, the last year. Um, and it should be stressed, I think it's important to stress, that at the beginning of this process, there was a genuine and heartfelt welcome from the Irish people, particularly recognising whatever one's view on the war in Ukraine may be, that there are innocent victims of that war and there are people fleeing that country who desperately need shelter and protection. And and so there was, in the initial few months, a, a, a big welcome and a lot of community initiatives to try and welcome people in. But what's happened since then has been, I think Ireland, you know, the people said, we will do our bit, we'll do our fair share. You know, if if there are 20, 30, 40,000 people to come here, we can accommodate them. We and, and then when the war is over, they will leave again and they'll go home and hopefully the war will be over in the next year or two. So that was the starting position. Unfortunately, for the, I think mainly the public, what has happened since then is obviously the war has settled down into what seems to be a long, drawn-out, never-ending conflict. There is... Um, the numbers coming here have been completely unlimited. And then the government has done things that make no sense. So in the last month, for example, one of the Irish government ministers announced, and this is just Ukrainian refugees I'm talking about now, that anyone who was here would, in their view, be entitled to stay here permanently, even when the war is over. So, so, the, so you know, there's a scene in Star Wars where Darth Vader tells Lando Calrissian, I am altering the terms of the deal. Pray that I do not alter it again. That's what the government has done. It has altered the terms of the deal. So now it is saying people who came here fleeing war may be entitled to permanent residency. And what has that done? We are members of the European Union where there is free movement of people inside the European Union. But we are also the only European Union state saying to Ukrainian citizens residing inside the EU as refugees that we will grant you permanent residency status if you are here when the war is over, which is encouraging actually Ukrainians to come here not from Ukraine. So they're coming from Germany, they're coming from Poland, they're coming from other countries where they are thankfully for the moment safe from Russian bombs and missiles, but we're offering them something extra, an added bonus again, the prospect of permanent residency. So we're now actually taking in refugees who are fleeing Germany, which is a perfectly nice country as I understand it so and that has as you 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 state and I'm sorry I'm talking a lot but I think it's important to lay out the the situation that has led to a situation where now there is massive pressure on accommodation where the government as you rightly point out are scrambling to find hotels uh 
guest houses. There was talk last week of, 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 of school dormitories, for example, uh, which is entirely inappropriate. You wouldn't put adults uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a school where there are kids going to school. So there, there are all these kind of madcap ideas that are being um, um, evaluated and, and proposed. And at the same time as this, last year we had um, a different situation, entirely separate to Ukraine, where our minister for, eventually our minister for this stuff, he's the minister for children, but he also has responsibility for sort of refugees and asylum seekers. He tweeted out um, globally in 74 languages, I think it was, that all asylum seekers who came to Ireland would be given own door accommodation within three months, regardless of where they ar- arrived from. So in the last year, we've had a surge of non-Ukrainian refugees coming. That is, I think, a 500% increase on the year before. We've had 5,000 people, and, and, and again, to Americans, that won't sound like a big number, but in a small country, it's a large number. We've had 5,000 people arrive into Ireland last year with no documents. In other words, they get on a plane in, in Budapest or Bucharest or or Berlin, they present their passport, they, they land into Dublin, and when they arrive at Irish immigration, they mysteriously have no documents. And you would think if somebody arrives with no documents, having transparently destroyed them, they would be sent home. But no, that's not what happens. They are immediately admitted into the system and accommodation is provided for them as is a daily stipend. So it is the only law that I'm aware of in Ireland, and I think it's the only law right across the European Union, that the government actually rewards people for breaking. If you destroy your documents coming into Dublin, they give you a reward, they give you housing, and they give you um, free accommodation. Now, in the context of the housing crisis that we mentioned just a few few moments ago, where we have people in Ireland who are simply unable to to buy a house, no prospect of buying a house for themselves, there's no rental market, um, there is basically no normal housing available, that we have had a situation where protests are erupting en masse, and they're mainly erupting in working class areas, because one thing that I think is traditional right across all democratic societies is when there is a social problem to be solved, governments keep it away from affluent areas. The situation is that the cheapest property is in working class areas with already high crime rates and overloaded schools and under pressure health system, and that's where these people are being sent. But because the protests are working class, and because in every country in the world where there is an active working class, Think of, think of the US, think of a Trump voter. Think of the way the elites in the US look down their nose at some, and I'm using their language, some yokel from Kansas um, who doesn't talk proper. That is the way the Irish elites are reacting to working class people protesting here. It scares them. Uh, and so this is where you get this, it's the march of the far right, the anti-immigration nativist nationalist movement. Now, are there some individuals in there who could fairly be categorized as far right? Yeah, of course there are. There are two, three, maybe as many as 20. But these are thousands of people, and they are being shamelessly smeared by the Irish media on on mass, which is just terrified of any prospect of this narrative being challenged. There's just so many uh, angles to this. I mean, can you believe that Ireland is now cr- condemning people for being nationalist? I mean, you know that, that's what the Irish state was built upon. Now, I mean, you know, I. I it's funny. I never, I never was against nationalist being a nationalist from Northern Ireland, and I always always was very didn't like the the anti-nationalist sentiment of the elites in dublin but it was a very small part of dublin uh, very often the elites that would be anti-nationalist but now it, uh, and it was okay to be southern nationalist it was okay to support the irish football team etc and be crazy about that but now anyone carrying a tricolor is almost uh, an irish tricolor is almost seen now as a hit flag uh, you know as as signifying that you're 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 one of them 
there was a photograph last week of the launch of the St. Patrick's Day Festival in Dublin, where the St. Patrick's Day Festival obviously is our biggest, largest, it's our national day, it's our 4th of July, and you had the minister responsible for the festival launching it, and you would want to see, we had drag queens, we had people in Colombian national dress, we had flamenco dresses, we had everything but Irishness. It's a St. Patrick's Day Festival that has nothing to do with Ireland, nothing to do with St. Patrick. Um, as you say, there's people, there's every every nationality uh, but Ireland, and it's like, why would you go? But also, you you know, you don't go to um, great festivals of the world. Uh, the one in Brazil, you know, you, you you celebrate Brazilian culture when you go there. You you know, this is what festivals. You, when you go to the Christmas markets in Austria or Germany, you celebrate the German tradition of Christmas. You know, the idea that 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 Ireland's one of the few countries where you come to their national festival and you'll see everything but a, a, an Irish person or an Irish costume or an Irish uh, flag. It is extraordinary. Also, the other thing that's happened here is that in recent years, gay pride seems to have gone from Pride Week to Pride Month to Pride Year to Pride Decade to the extent that now I, I don't know if there's a day of the week when you can, or a day of the year when you go through Dublin and not, not see a, a rainbow flag or even now that's redundant and bigoted, the transgender flag. Uh, flying um, on some building in Dublin. And I mean, it's like if Christmas was on every year, you know, I mean, there's just too much Mariah Carey in both instances. It's it's just all the time, everywhere. Um, uh, you know, this the only thing that can be celebrated now is diversity. Uh, and, and it's not celebration of diversity. It is the promotion to the exclusion of all else of minority uh, uh, lifestyles and minority cultures, which is fine, but to the exclusion of what actually makes us a country. Um, and Ireland is sort of, I, I call it late stage pro progressivism. This is, this is, this is the US it, it, after 15 years of Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez as empress. You know, that's, that's what we're talking about. So we've had these protests and obviously, and uh, one thing that has struck me recently, uh, you know, looking both as, as a former Irish journalist, you know, someone who worked in Irish journalism, North and South, you know, Back in the day, like I, mean, I remember Irish journalism, it was vicious, it was toxic, it was great fun. Like, you, you know, if there was an issue uh, to be taken, uh, you know, somebody would, one newspaper would take one side, the other newspaper would take the other side. And quite frequently, the journalists would end up in fisticuffs at an awards dinner or a, a pub over over some story that ever, that you know, people took sides on. I mean, you know, even um, the, the 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 swimmer Smith, Michelle Smith, Michelle, is that her name? Yeah, yeah. I mean Smith De Bruyne. Smith De Bruyne. The newspapers took sides there, and they and very very often the story would become, look how that journalist made that mistake there, and they miscovered that, and it would become very personal and very vicious. There's none of that now. Every media, it's very disappointing. Very often you would see in the old days, the dailies would carry the story and then the Sundays would just debunk everything that the dailies did. And now the headlines from the Sunday newspapers are just the same as the dailies. You know, far right, this guy from the far right, far right, far right, and being influenced by far right from America and far right from the UK and far, you know. And it's like there's no suggestion that people uh, welcoming... 200,000 people in, in, into a, house, a country that's already experiencing a housing crisis 
and into and and sticking them all in working class areas that are already overcrowded and have have problems that, that that's not a legitimate concern for people to be protesting against and there's no violence at these protests but that brings me on then to the story that caught my attention was the Irish Times finally, finally which is the, the paper of record, the New York Times of Ireland, finally found a piece of anti-immigrant violence to report. Uh, their reporter, Kitty Holland, uh, was at a campsite. And it's never been explained why these people are camping, by the way, because as yet, the, the, the government has found accommodation for almost everyone. There's been a few nights maybe where people are homeless. But at the moment, I think there is roofs for people. Um, she, she's at this campsite and ran a story that men with sticks, bats and dogs attacked the immigrants. The interesting thing about this story is that they weren't actually even migrants in the context of who we're talking about coming into the country at the moment. The people at this camp were all European Union citizens who have, of course, a legal right to live in Ireland. They had just fallen on hard times, become unemployed. Homeless people like you have everywhere else in the country, sadly. They weren't people who'd come into the country in recent months. They weren't people who had you know, lost their passports or they weren't Ukrainian. They were people who'd been living there on apparently a long-term basis. So the country woke up, essentially, it was Saturday, so, so, yeah, Saturday morning, I think about the 29th of January, to this news that the Irish Times had witnessed an attack on a migrant camp, that their journalist Kitty Holland had just happened to be there, that men had arrived with sticks, um, uh, bats, a baseball bat, and aggressive dogs, and that a, 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 one man had been injured and that the Gardaí, the Irish police, had arrived on the scene and questioned people. Now, it was an extraordinary story. It was massively impactful. It was, of course, uh, immediately amplified across all the other radio and broadcast stations and the other newspapers that the Irish Times had a reporter who had witnessed an attack and so on and so forth. Now, the problem was that it just didn't make sense to me, I should say. It made sense clearly to a lot of people because they ran the story. But Kitty Holland, the reporter, was on the scene. Um, it was widely reported um, that she had witnessed this attack. She had a photographer with her, and yet there were no images, no photographs. The cameraman had not, um, no images have been produced of this incident that is alleged to have taken place. What's more, um, there were no witnesses on record, apart from Kitty Holland, that it had happened at all. Um, and there were other problems uh, w with the story, which was that at one point she had seen the men going in, another point she was leaving, and her story, if you listen to it across various radio stations, it seemed to keep constantly shifting. And so what I did was I, I, wrote, I wrote a piece for Gripped.ie on the subsequent mon Monday, and all I said was, there are problems with this story, there are some inconsistencies with it, it's not credible that there are no photographs, it's hard to figure out what she witnessed if anything, and then everybody went insane. Um, I was attacking the integrity of a respected journalist. Um, I was downplaying racism. You know, it was as if there was huge investment in this attack having happened, that it was vital to somebody's interests that it had happened. Um, and, and and by the way, I should say as well, the other thing with the report was that the, the Garda Síochána, the Irish police force, had stated on the record that they had received no complaint, there was no reports of any injuries, and that, um, you know, they, 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 
at that stage, they weren't investigating any further, which was very inconsistent with the report of a large group of armed men attacking a group of defenseless migrants, which is what the story we were told was. So I published a piece on the Monday saying, here are questions. Everybody went insane. There was, um, you know, I was fake news. Gript was attacking the integrity, as I say, of a journalist, of the entire media. Her colleagues went bananas. But something very interesting happened, which was that I've been through this in the past. And normally what happens is that the public tend to close ranks behind the media, but it didn't happen this time. The questions just kept mounting, particularly on social media. Somebody very, um, in my view, unfairly, but still amusingly, um, started a hashtag called Kitty Smollett comparing uh, Kitty Holland to Jussie Smollett in, um, in, in, in Chicago, which I, I do think, for the record, I think that's unfair and I think it goes further and I don't think it's the same, it's the same situation. But, but the whole thing kind of took off. Um, and uh, eventually I had my colleague, um, eventually after several days of trying to call her, ring up Kitty Holland and, and, and ask her some of these questions because she was a very hard woman to get. And on the record, on tape, to great media, she admitted that she had never witnessed any attack. Even, even though, and, and, but in the original article, did she say she had witnessed it or she'd come across it afterwards? It was very cleverly written. It was, it was written in a way that, sorry, cl cleverly and carefully written. So the headline was men with sticks, bats and dog attack camp. Okay. Um, the Irish Times interrupted them. Uh, that was the word used. The Irish Times interrupted the men in the midst of the attack on the camp. Now, that is the impression. If I said that I interrupted somebody burgling your, bur bur burglarizing your home, Phelan, you would expect that I had you know, encountered the burglar. But that impression was allowed to be given. And what's more, and what is, is very important, and I think is damning of Kitty Holland, who I think is a good journalist, but I, I think she, she may have let the story run a bit more than it should have this time. What is damning, I think, of her is that in multiple radio interviews, she was introduced as a witness to an attack. So RTE said, uh, Kitty Holland, who witnessed the attack. News Talk, which is the largest commercial station, said Kitty Holland, who witnessed the attack. There were others. She never once corrected them to say, I didn't witness anything. It was only when we asked her directly, were you a witness, was the first time that she she said that. Um, so what we now have um, is a situation where her story is apparently that she saw men leaving a campsite and heard some shouting, which is a far, far cry from uh, from, you know, interrupted an attack and it is and, and it should be restated again there is no evidence that i'm aware of that anyone was actually physically attacked now with all that i mean what, what i'll say about this is that it, it, it was the classic example of the of the media finding a story that was good enough to broadcast everywhere because of the story it told about the dangerous rise of the violent far right and attacks on migrants um and the story was good enough that um, everyone ran with it and nobody asked basic questions. The story by itself, by the way, is, I think, a little bit concerning. I, I think if people are going into camps shouting at migrants, they shouldn't be doing that. I wrote that as well. well then initially, didn't they say that, that the photographer that she was with was threatened that if he took photographs, uh, so he didn't take photographs. But then it's changed that they have photographs, but they're not releasing them because of Ireland's defamation laws. Am I correct in that? or is, is You're entirely correct. So the initial explanation for the word no photographs was that the attackers, the men, had said to the photographer, uh, you know, if you do this, take pictures of us, we'll bust your camera. The new explanation is that there are photographs of the men, but they can't be released for legal reasons. But this, again, Phelan, makes no sense. Because 
um, if you, uh, and I'm talking journalist to journalist here, but you know this as well as I do, you can't libel a dog and you can't libel a baseball bat and you can't libel a stick. What you can do is blur out faces. I mean, we actually, uh, this is another element of the story, we uncovered a, a, separate, a, a separate incident that had happened at that same camp that same morning that Kitty Holland was there. Now, whether it's the same incident, I do not know, but we published the video of it. And in that video, there are no sticks, there are no baseball bats, and there are no dogs, but there are men going into the camp on foot of a recent sexual assault in the area to establish why these men are here, what they're doing, what's the reason for them being there. And that video starts out with an aggressive sort of a what are you doing here exchange, but it ends with both parties shaking hands and it ends with, with both parties parting amicably. There's no violence, there's no physical threats or anything of any kind. I know for a fact, I'm comfortable saying that video was videoed on the same morning that Kitty Holland was at the camp and there's no violence in it and it is the only footage of that camp that anyone has published um, that took place that morning. We should be clear here, we're, we're, not, you know, we're not saying that the assault didn't happen, right? Um, However, we're saying there's some there's been some very bad journalism around it. I mean, we we don't know at the moment, right? But there's been some very bad journalism, very sloppy journalism. And if this was a a story about an assault by a, you know a politician said I'd been assaulted, you know, or you know some 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 someone who's fair game, as you would say, um, that this story would would be under a lot more scrutiny, but. But this story has not been given the scrutiny it deserves, except by yourself. No, it hasn't. It hasn't. And, and I mean, the, the Irish Times, I think it's very funny. I mean, they have they, they, they actually published an update to the story this past weekend in which some of the details appear to change. So now, now for example, the, the, they, they are on record as confirming that the Guardi visited the camp, but it was at 10.30 in the morning, not 12.15 when Kitty Holland was there. Um one of the witnesses has changed nationality. He was Polish. He's now Croatian. So there, there, there are all sorts of details constantly changing and shifting um, in this story that really make me ask a basic question of how it got published. Because the Irish Times, to my mind, Kitty Holland did get and suffered a lot of abuse this week, not all of which she deserved, because I'm an editor. I edit um, a, a news website. I come across copy, with all due respect to my reporters, who I love dearly, but I come across copy every day of the week where I say to them, we can't publish this for your sake. It needs more X. It needs more information. It needs a better argument. It needs another fact. That's the job of an editor. I think uh, in this case, the editors saw a story that was raw and thought, this is good enough, and it's to, it's such a good story that we'll get loads of clicks and loads of reads and advance an agenda we agree with, so we'll publish it. Agenda. And I think in, yeah. in so in so doing, they put their own journalist in the hot water. And I think that's very unfair to Kitty Holland, who I think is a nice person. Back in the day, if it was in the Irish Times on Saturday morning, it would be debunked in the Sunday Times and the Sunday Independent on Sunday morning. There's just no appetite for that at all now. No, there is there is not. Maybe the mail and I don't know. I don't. I don't read the the Irish Daily Mail. I think they're they're they they're a bit of the debunkers at times, you know. But there's very little debunking going on in Irish media at the moment. No, I mean, well, there's a siege mentality in Irish journalism. There really is, and that's the only way to describe it. Where, where, I mean, one of the things that's happened uh, here, and which I think people in other countries have to be very wary about happening and they're very wary of happening in their countries is that the media has essentially become entirely dependent on the state for its survival so last month for example in uh, sorry not last month before christmas in our annual budget um the government abolished the vat the value added tax the sales tax on newspapers um 
purely a handout to the newspaper industry that the prices haven't been passed on. Um, the, the national broadcaster is funded by a state-funded TV license tax where all of us have to pay regardless of whether we watch and it goes and it subsidizes them. Most other broadcasters, commercial broadcasters and newspapers are surviving almost entirely based on government advertising. If it's not advertising directly from the government, it is advertisement from a, from a, a state-funded body. We have a legion of non-governmental organizations that are funded by the state and everything from cancer awareness to um, obesity to public health to we have a big advertising campaign going on at the moment about consent before asking a, a person to sleep with you. Um, all of which is being broadcast on the airwaves and in the newspapers with taxpayer funded euros. And if that was all switched off in the morning, they'd all go out of business. So they are hugely dependent on good relations with the state. That's the first thing. Um, and because of that, their coverage has tended in recent years to constantly reinforce the state's narrative, whether that be on COVID-19, on COVID vaccinations, on immigration, on, on Ireland's big problem with crime, particularly on our relationship with the European Union. I mean, the, the media will line up behind the state position every time because, I mean, you know, I, I don't, you know, if you have uh, donors or if you have financiers, you're wary about crossing them. And uh, that's a big problem in the Irish media now. You know, it's, uh, we could talk about it all day and it's it's very interesting and uh, people, you know, a lot of um, our listeners still would have a view of Ireland as being a conservative country. It's not. It's a, it's a the past <laughs> is a foreign country and so is Ireland um, or whatever. Um, but I, I just wanted to talk to you about this other story that we that we came across, um, which funny, it's it's a. It's a Dutch issue, but it's actually it's 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 a disease. It's an international disease. So it's in the Irish Times. Irish directors all male Beckett play cancelled as only men could audition. Right. So it's waiting for Godot. Right. Samuel Beckett's waiting for Godot, which is five men waiting for Godot, and it's a bleak play as many Beckett plays are. And uh, uh, so this guy. Uh, young fella from Donegal, Oisin Moyne. Uh, he was making his directorial debut with the Samuel Beckett work uh, in 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 the Netherlands at the University of Groningen, a uh, student cultural centre. So he, he cast the play. But when, when the, the university found out that he put out on all... Oh, I should say, Samuel Beckett, a very, very wise man, a very, very wise man, back in 1953, said... This is waiting for Godot, and it will never, ever. You will you cannot put this play on if you don't have five men in the roles. This is not five women. It's not five transgenders. It's not five lesbians. It's not five children. It's not five dogs. It's five men waiting for Godot. That's how it should be, and uh, uh, so he he followed those rules of the Beckett estate. But when the university found out that he. It sent out a casting call for men only. They said this this contradicts our inclusivity policy, so they banned uh, Waiting for Godot. So the people of Holland are not going to see this performance of Waiting for Godot. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 kind of funny, but in some ways it's logical. It's the it's the it's the logical um, extension of what we have seen in recent years. I mean, uh, with with you know in the UK. There were attempts to remove Winston Churchill's statue. Um, in you know, in the US, we've seen what's happened uh, on college campuses. We've seen attempts to redefine people as, as from Thomas Jefferson to Abraham Lincoln as in some way problematic. Um, the logic, the logic now of progressivism is that the past must conform 
to modern social values, and if it doesn't, the past must be erased. It's a year zero approach to the world. I mean, Ed West, who's a, a, a UK writer and somebody who I think people are interested in this should read, was, was, was writing about this recently in terms of the, the constant eradication of the past has become, um, it's become a religious, an act of religious fanaticism. I'll give you another example of it, and it's an Irish example, um, which is that this week, um, in fact, yesterday, the 6th of, uh, sorry, the 7th of February yesterday, we had our first ever national holiday for our patron female saint, St. Bridget. So St. Patrick is, this, is the patron saint, but St. Bridget was always the sort of female version of St. Patrick. She was an abbess, a nun, and so on and so forth. Um, so we had a bank holiday for her, except it has been decreed by the great and the good that, that, that she was not a Catholic saint at all. She has been redefined. We are now celebrating a pagan goddess called Breed, from pre-Celtic Christian times because, because the, the, the religious feast is kind of problematic. So we had nationally funded arts celebrating on the feast day of a Christian um, saint, um, a pagan goddess, because Catholicism is problematic now and sort of pre, pre-Christian pagan times were good. And there's this narrative similar to what you see with the waiting for God old thing that Christianity and Western culture destroyed women and crushed women beneath the boot and therefore we must bring back the pre-Christian era. That's how far we have gone now, at least in Ireland and everywhere else you see this complete tearing down of anything that's problematic at all from the past because we simply must, progressives want to tear it all down and start again where everyone everyone conforms. And I mean, and they call them, they believe themselves genuinely to be moderate people. These are the most extreme people. It's the most extreme ideology we have had uh, since the days of Chairman Mao. Yeah, it's so destructive too because, look, anyone, I mean, I suppose if you don't know what a woman is, uh, how do you know what a man is? But anyone can tell you five men waiting for Godot is very different than five women waiting for Godot, right? Right. You know, if, you, if you've got five men sitting around in a bleak theatre waiting for Godot, it's a very different atmosphere than five women. And it's a very different atmosphere from three men and two women waiting for Godot. And it's very different to five lesbians are waiting for Godot. It's, these are different plays, right? So go and create your own play. Five lesbians waiting for a bus or whatever it is. Five transgenders waiting for a lawsuit. I don't know. But this is... What's extraordinary? Can I... Sorry, sorry, can I just interrupt you there? Because it, what, what is extraordinary is it's, it's very important to note that they were five Irish men, right? They weren't, they weren't, they weren't, if this was a play, if Samuel Beckett had written a play about um, five black African-American men in the South in the pre-Reconstruction era um, waiting for a bus and somebody suggested coming along and replacing those people with white men or indeed, you know, Asian women, there would be war. Because it would be it would be said you were attacking an important piece of of anti racist or black literature, and that would be correct. That would be correct because it te- it's telling it's telling a story. Um, Waiting for Godot is telling a story. Samuel Beckett was a writer deeply enmeshed in sort of Irish culture, Irish moors. He was he was he was writing a play about specifically Irish masculinity. That's what the play is about. Essentially, it's a play. It's a play about men. Everything else, the plot of the play itself is secondary to that. The characterization is about masculinity. When you take that away, you're not left with anything. I mean, you can't have a woman um, portraying portraying herself in a play. But it's it's you know anyway. But there are there are double rules. It is not, and it is never applied consistently. Consistently, and it is only and ever um, what they choose to be offended by on a given day. Listen, we could talk all day. 
Um, but um, thank you very much, John. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And uh, not at all, Pete. Uh, you know, the chronicle uh, chronicling uh, the, the decline of Irish civilization is is both um, depressing and fun with you. And so <laughs> we should we should do it again. Uh, so you can get John. Tell us where. Tell people where they can get you and where they can read your excellent journalism. The only journalism in Ireland now. Well, gript.ie, um, G-R-I-P-T dot I-E is where you can get me and all my writing. You should also, if you, I'm going to, going to de- uh, do something failing my show, I, I don't normally do, I'm going to plug my own podcast, actually, which is out every week. It's called The Week That Really Was. You can find it on Apple um, or Spotify, all these places people get podcasts. And that's me and David Quinn, who is maybe the only other sort of half-sensible um, journalist left. And there are lots of sensible people in Ireland, but there aren't many sensible journalists left. David and I might be it. Um, and so we have a weekly podcast as well. So if you want more of me, that's where to find me. But if you don't, I understand why. It can be depressing stuff. Yeah, so it's gripped.ie, G-R-I-P-T dot I-E, and then the, re- the week that really was uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, thanks, John. Yes, thanks, Phil. Bye-bye. Well, as I say, as I say, Samuel Beckett is twisting and twirling in his grave. But he's not actually because he's actually proven right. Oh yeah, no, that's true. Actually, he won. Actually, actually he won. Yeah, he's going. You know, told you, told you. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, talking of stew, uh, talking of uh, an Irish mess or something. We're talking about cold and talking about all of that and the winter and all of that. We have a great recipe, Um, and this is a recipe for. you know, for a traditional a traditional beef stew with a couple of twists, a couple of twists that I threw in, actually. Um, and you can twist away yourself, by the way, with this recipe. I think the main thing is cooking low and slow for a really long time a piece of meat that has plenty of, a good bit of fat on it. Never, you can never go wrong. No. You really can that, never go that's wrong. That's really. I think that's kind of that's kind of the big lesson. Yes. So this recipe is on the and again just and that's to remind why, people. I just say that's why we haven't. As we're recording this, we haven't eaten it because it's it's been cooking for. 24, 36 hours, it's just been... Well, it hasn't. No, it has not been okay, cooking been for 36 sitting, hours, no. Sitting. But uh, what's what's really good with something like this, leaving cooking... You, know, you often hear people say that, it tasted better the next day. I actually think people should really, if you're going to do a braise, cook it the day before, eat it the next day. Let it have that. Let it have a time to sit and relax. So you start this recipe with, um, you know, seasoned flour, basically, and put it into a Ziploc bag. Very clever. Cut up your piece of meat. And this meat that I used here was chuck roast. What they call a chuck roast. Get the chuck roast and cut it up into like by you know into one inch um, pieces, and, I, and you don't have to be too correct about all of this. And then swish that around. So you want to just cover all the meat with mm. a little bit of fl- about the seasoned flour. Um, then heat about three tablespoons of oil in your large large Dutch oven. So what you do then is you brown the beef in batches. Don't overcrowd the pan and brown. Make sure you brown everything. Then take them off as, as they're browned. Take them all off. Then into that, you'll see that there's like a little bit of everything is kind of, you know, stuck to the bottom there a bit. No bottom that because all that's really yummy, yummy, yummy tasty. Into that, you throw in some red wine vinegar and I've got all mm. the quantities and all of that is written there. I did quite a large batch here. I did three pounds of meat yes, and you big, can obviously big batch. you can obviously do this less. But I just think if you're going to go ahead and do all this work, you might as well do it for a big batch because you can freeze this easy peasy. So add the vinegar and wine and uh, I've used three cups of wine there of like basically a, mm-hmm. a cup of wine for each pound and then cook that over a medium high heat scraping the pan oh yeah and what else is going in there can I just say something yes I am going to leave this podcast I'm going to go and taste it and then I'm going to come back and to watch at the end of this podcast because I'm going to record a little yes to tell you how this tastes yes I think it's unfair that we're cooking it that's true that's actually a great point that's Uh, a great plan Phelan so I'm going to come back uh, after uh, so wait to the end and don't you'll see Phelan yes yes and I'll tell you 
exactly I'll how give it a thumbs up or thumbs down of course Anne won't be here either so, so I'll, yeah, exactly. I'll, I won't feel pressure so you cook over a medium high heat um, scraping the pan with a wooden spoon so just to loosen all the pieces mm-hmm. that are stuck to the bottom there then you add the ba- throw in the beef put the beef back in with beef broth and I'm just using regular beef broth there at bullion that I have the house and bay leaves and rosemary I had some rosemary in the garden you see me cutting the rosemary in the garden there isn't that delightful who and planted that rosemary? did we? Yeah. did you? Or that's out in Ireland that I plant the rosemary. I don't know, but my God, it grows very, very well. And it's so fragrant. What a lovely smell of it. Anyway, bring that to a boil and then immediately reduce that down and let it have the slowest, slowest, what do we call it? The laziest of simmers, right? Then in a, ideally in a cast iron pot, what I want to do is chop up about five shallots mm-hmm. um, and and cook them down on a low flame. Throw into that a bit about, I put in about two or three fat garlic cloves um, and then I just found a sweet pepper that had not been used over, had been, remember I didn't use it in the soup the last day. Mm. So I just threw that in as well. Nice chop, chop, some chop, people, chop. Some people, some people. And some tomato paste. Some people recommend throwing it into the pot, not without cooking, but you cooked it, I believe. I you fried it, uh, yes. uh, uh, sauteed it yes. because, to keep the sweetness. Is that Yes, right? because actually to bring out the sweetness because onions, when they're, when they're sauteed like that, Nice and low and slow, and you could you could really do it low and slow for ages. The more and more you do it, the more the more succulent and the more sweet they become. Very very nice. Cook that for about five minutes, and add this lovely lot, all that lovely lot, back into your big pot, and then I sort of immediately after that I would add the carrots, quite a bunch of carrots. You see there again the quantities are in the the recipe, Qu- carrots and potatoes, and simmer for about an hour, and then I would turn that off. Right. I would turn that this is what we've done we've turned it off Um, and then the next day and I do think I would say that and if you want to do it all in the one day then just you know give it a rest let it sit for a while and then turn it back on and I would simmer it really low for about a half an hour to make sure that everything is cooked through and then serve that with just mashed potatoes and you'll see us serving it up now with our guests this evening you see see what that looks like Um, and I just think warming comforting and just really gorgeous and very and it's all very subtle. And, and by the way, people who want to add, if you want to make it a little bit more, you know, oomphy, you could put in some Worcestershire sauce and we might add some Worcestershire sauce. But you don't have to because I just fact, think it's very delicate. We, uh, we're going to serve it to guests this evening. We're hoping to serve it to guests tomorrow evening as yeah, well. Yeah, so, we're hoping to get a, go- a good few days out of it. Because that's the three pound of, of beef. So it should be, it should be enough to last. But, but hold on uh, to the end here because I am going to come back in now, because I'm going to go home and taste some of it and come back to this very location and tell you how it was. Okay. Bye. Bye. <laughs> so, just to, to tell you, here's the food, the, uh, the beautiful stew that Anne made. Uh, we tasted it last night. We had some people over for dinner. It was beautiful. It was just, and it was the perfect night. Wonderful food. Highly recommended. The recipe will be in the show notes and it'll be in on the website on reportedstorysociety.com. Thank you very much. Bye.